Hello and welcome to Nightlight. We're going to pick up where we left off from our last session so that we have a continuity of thought between uh, the last session and where we are now. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, if you remember, we left off examining this sadly overlooked verse. 1 Samuel 12, 23, God forbid, Samuel says, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And we pointed out the fact that it's Samuel speaking and that he says if he stops praying for Israel, he will be sinning against the Lord, not sinning against Israel. He wants to stop praying for them. I mean, he's pretty mad at them because they have chosen to have a king like the pagan nations. It's just an aside here, but very important aside, that God is not such a megalomaniac. Uh, he's not, you know, he's not preoccupied with his own authority and sovereignty. He lets Israel make their wrong choice and then accommodates by grace and mercy uh, to establish Samuel as an intercessor so that through Samuel's intercession he can bring about the best possible outcome for a wrong choice of Israel. That's a big subject and too much to try to get into here except just to say that uh, as I've mentioned before, some people are so intoxicated with the idea of, quote, sovereignty that they think that God is directly responsible for everything that happens. And if you think that, then you're, you're, you've got to be mentally unstable or you're worshiping a God who's mentally unstable because some of the things that happen are terrible and God can't be the source of them, but he can be and is the redeemer in spite of them, but he has chosen to make that dependent to some degree on the intercessory prayer life of his prophets, apostles, and saints. So Samuel says he will be sinning against God if he keeps himself in an attitude uh, of not wanting to pray for Israel. So he says, I will, I will continue to pray for you. So in, in that sense, he is uh, God, uh, God's hand outstretched on behalf of a wayward people who are heading for uh, a self-imposed time of great sorrow and trouble. God wants to be their king. They don't want God. They want kings like the nations. Uh, that's a whole other subject we're not able, not able to get into here. Later on, Philippians 1.19, Paul says here, I know the lavish supply of the Spirit of Jesus, the Messiah, and your intercession for me will bring about my deliverance. We talked about the fact that the Spirit, the lavish supply of the Spirit is manifested on behalf of Paul through the intercession of God's people. Can God do it without God's people? Yeah, God can, but that's not what it says. Obviously, that's not what God wants. Saying that God can do it without our prayers is kind of a useless theological redundancy. What we need to focus on the fact that God has established the structure of the universe <clears throat> so that it cannot come forth in its fullness of purpose without the intercessory involvement of me and you, and that should give us great motivation to pray. Romans 15, verse 30, we looked at this verse. I plead with you because of our union with our Lord Jesus Christ to be partners with me in your prayers to God. My dear brothers and sisters in the faith, with the love we share in the Holy Spirit, fight alongside me in prayer. Ask the Father to deliver me from the danger I face from the unbelievers in Judea. And we, we talked about the fact that obviously he's not asking people to pray that God will wake up to the fact that Paul is facing opposition from principalities and powers of darkness who operate through the religious structure of Judea. He is saying, 
what I've been saying, that God is expecting the people of God who are his hand extended in the earth to join with him and partner with him in prayer, not in the mindset of talking God into doing something that God is hesitant or resistant to do, but cooperating with what God intends to do, but God does not intend to do it without the involvement of his own people who he is training for future rulership of the entire universe by training us to deal with conflicts and difficulties in this present theater of the universe, which is planet Earth. Okay, so having reviewed that, let's move on to Ephesians chapter 6, which is a verse that we all know. Most of us could quote it, but uh, if you're like me, it's so quoted and so oft-repeated that it kind of rolls off of us and it doesn't penetrate like it needs to. So I, I, I'm going to, to be honest with you, when I hear people quote the whole armor of God, I, I glaze over and go blank <clears throat> because Paul is speaking in poetic language and poetry is supposed to be dense. In other words, one line of poetry, you can have a whole a whole lecture in English lit class from one line of poetry. You know, what does it mean? How does it, how do you unpack it? And, and most people don't bother to unpack the poetry of Ephesians 6. And so I just glaze over because I get bored with the repetition of it. It doesn't It doesn't reach me. It doesn't feed me. It doesn't speak to me. I need it to be unpacked. And so I have actually attempted to partially unpack Ephesians 6 in a way that might grip our imagination and make us really take hold of what Paul is trying to get us to see here. Uh, He says in verse uh, chapter chapter 10 and, and through 18 of Ephesians 6, Now, my beloved ones, I have saved the most important truths for last. Remember, we've just read through Ephesians chapter 3, various parts of Ephesians. The subject of principalities and powers is not new. Uh, If all you take is chapter 6 and read it out of the context of the rest of the letter, then you miss the point that Paul's been talking about principalities and powers and rulers of darkness all through the letter. He's been talking about the establishing of God's people on the earth as uh, uh, a manifestation of God's great wisdom uh, that our prayer life unfolds that wisdom in the face of evil spirits of darkness that are constantly trying to resist us. he, in Colossians, he, he addresses the same thing. Principalities and powers of darkness, he, in Colossians, he says they've been utterly defeated, completely destroyed. And yet, in Ephesians chapter 6, he's talking like we're still in conflict. How do you reconcile those two issues? Well, we're going we're gonna to unpack all of that in sessions to come. But let me just say for now, till we can really delve into it in detail, which God helping us, we're going to do soon. Um, The cross destroyed principalities and powers in the sense of making whatever they do end up serving God's purposes instead of their own purposes. It's a far greater victory than if it had just been conquest. This is why Paul refers to us in Romans as being more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors because Jesus not only defeated Satan in a conflict He destroyed everything Satan stands for so that whatever the enemy is doing is going to turn for God's glory and the good of those the enemy is trying to do it to. That should give you great comfort when you face the subject of unforgivable, horrible evil that seems to make no sense. It will not make sense in this present darkness. 
evil cannot be made sense of. And any, any attempt to make it make sense makes no sense. We should look at it, snarl at it, raise our fist against it, so to speak, uh, demand uh, that uh, powers of darkness be put on notice that we're not going to sit back and be passive in the face of it, uh, knowing that Jesus has already defeated it. I know this doesn't make sense to you if you've not been following this line of teaching for very long, but I promise you if you'll stick with me, it will begin to make sense. And it needs to make sense because it will keep you from giving up in prayer. It will keep you from being overwhelmed with uh, negative thinking as you as you see what looks like total insanity taking over our country uh you won't be you won't be uh over overthrown by it we'll talk more about that in a minute but paul paul goes on to say here in ephesians chapter 6 after talking about all the stuff i just got through talking about he closes his letter in ephesians 6 with these words now my beloved ones i have Save the most important truths for last. Be supernaturally infused with strength through your life union with the Lord Jesus. Stand victorious with the force of his power flowing in and through you. Put on God's complete set of armor provided for us so that you will be protected as you fight against the evil strategies of the accuser. And the implication is the evil strategies that come at you every day. Your hand-to-hand combat is not with human beings, but it is with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. For they are a powerful class of demon gods and and evil spirits that hold this present world in darkness. Because of this, you must wear all the armor that God provides so you are protected as you confront the slanderer. And after conquering, keep standing. Uh, this This is again coming from mostly the Passion Translation, though I have thrown in and pulled in some other translations intermingled with it. So it, if you're following me along in the Amplified or in the King James Version or whatever version you're reading from, uh, you'll, you'll notice that I'm giving an amplification of certain parts of it. But I'm fixing to amplify it a great deal in the next portion because, as I just got through saying, just quoting Ephesians 6 about putting on the whole armor of God has never never gotten through to me at all. It bores me out of my mind. What is it really saying? Not, not that, Don't just give me poetry. For instance, he says in the next verse, put on the truth as a belt. Okay, fine. What does that mean? Well, the belt of a Roman soldier. He's basing all this on the, the armaments of a Roman soldier. And he's the belt of truth, the belt is the part that holds all of the other parts in their proper place. And it's strong and it's tight like a girdle on a, a horse. And it holds everything in place. And he's saying, make sure you understand what you believe and that it's all properly in its place. That doesn't mean you've got to have a theology degree, but it does mean that you understand some basic principles. So he's saying if you're going to go into spiritual warfare, you've got to understand some basic things that can't be moved in you. Put the the truth as a belt and let it wrap around your entire being and hold everything together so that you can keep standing in triumph. This particular belt that he's talking about. Everybody understood this. The, the Roman belt was not, it was not just something to hold your pants up, for heaven's sakes. It's to hold you up. Uh, it's, it's, it's similar to sometimes you'll see a, a, a bodybuilder or a, 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 a weightlifter who's about to, to, to lift a large amount of weight. 
he'll he'll have a belt that holds his torso in place. That's the idea here, that you don't get shaken at your core by something that throws you off of the basic truth of the gospel. That's the first thing. Then he says, put on holiness as a protection that covers your heart. Your heart refers to your affections, your emotions, your relationships, your desires. He says, if you're going to go into spiritual conflict, make sure your heart is clean in your affections, your emotions, your relationships, your desires. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm already disqualified because, man, my big struggle every day of my life is in my wayward affections and my unstable emotions and my broken relationships and my impure desires. Then bring all that into prayer first. See, you bring that into the truth of uh, the, the, the fullness of the gospel. You bring that in uh, b- before you try to deal with principalities and powers. Now, you got to remember something here. The devil knows that you're weak in those areas. He knows that you're unstable. He knows that you're vulnerable. He knows that you've got areas of uh, instability. And he loves to beat you over the head with your failures and your continued weaknesses. And he will be right there to quote scripture to you about how God doesn't hear people who who tolerate sin. And since you've got certain areas of your life that are not pure yet, you better not pray. Listen, God does not tolerate people who embrace sin willfully, but he is more than present to you when you come to him with the repeated weaknesses of your life because you are trying with all you know how to overcome them. He's there helping you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And condemnation is never, never uh, valid. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the translators stick that next part in there, who walk uh, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And the devil loves to take that part that's not in the text and pull it out and beat you to death with it. So you say, well, see, I'm not walking in the spirit. I can't go to God. It's it's almost like you're saying to yourself, when I get to where I don't need to pray, then I can pray. When I get to where I don't need to come to God, then I'll come to God. When I, when I don't need a bath, then I'll bathe. It, it's silliness. Come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. And if you're like me, the biggest time of need of my life is when my affections, my emotions, my relationships, and my desires were thrown off track by my own brokenness or by other people's brokenness. And I learned to pray with my hands dirty I mean, I know the scripture says, who can ascend to the mountain of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. But that's a poetic statement of those who have cleansed their hands and purified their hearts in the presence of the Lord. It's not saying you can't come to God if your hands are dirty or if your heart is crooked. If if that's true, how would you ever get clean hands and how would you ever get a pure heart? Religion is so whacked. Come to him as a father as your father who loves you and bring your worst to him and in his presence let him cleanse whatever needs cleansing so that you can do the next part which is stand on your feet alert to dangers but but not fearfully because you are taking your position firmly on the gospel of peace. That's an amplification of put on uh, the, 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 the shoes of the gospel of peace. Uh, putting on shoes doesn't mean a thing to me. What, what does it really mean? Stand on your feet and be alert to the, to the dangers around you, not in fear of those dangers, but because you've taken a firm position in the gospel of peace, you are standing not according to your feelings, not according to your, your emotions, not even according to your previous behavior 30 seconds before you started praying. I mean, that's one of the devil's favorite tools is to say, well, you, you can't pray, you just yelled at your wife. You can't pray, you just 
got angry at that guy that ran the stop sign. You, you can't pray. You've been lusting. You can't. Just name it. Just name it. I mean, all he's got to do if he sees you thinking about prayer is stir up some old pattern of failure in you and then tell you that you're not qualified to pray. So he won. And he wasn't trying to get you to feel unqualified uh, uh, because of your sin. He was mainly interested in keeping you from praying. Anyway, then the next verse says, uh, lift up over everything the covering shield of faith. What that means is, see, the Roman soldiers would take their their shield, and, and you've seen in the movies, if you've seen any movies uh, where there's ancient warfare, uh, the large shield that covers the whole body, they could make that shield into a, a little house. I mean, you know, the guy next to you and the guy in front of you and the guy behind you, you all put your faith together and the, the shield becomes a little house that you hide under it just... And all the fiery darts hit that house and have no place to, to land and no place to stick. He says, when you, when you don't feel any of the other things, then the one thing you can always depend on is something that is greatest when it's feeling the least. And that is faith. The very nature of faith is that it is not dependent on how you feel. It's dependent on whether you believe what God has said or not. And so it covers all of you so the missiles of the enemy will bounce off of you. And the missiles of the enemy are aimed at mostly at your head. So cover your head. I always think of uh, Charles Wesley's wonderful lyrics from Jesus, lover of my soul. Cover my defenseless head uh, with the shadow of your wing. Cover my defenseless head with faith in your goodness. Cover your mind. Here's another one. You know, the King James Version says, put on the helmet of salvation. Well, Paul expected us to amplify that so it has some meaning to it. The helmet of salvation. whoop de doo It doesn't mean a thing to me if, if all you're doing is... Uh, Painting pictures uh, of, of Roman soldier armor and trying to spiritualize it. Well, what does it mean to put on the helmet of salvation? It means cover your mind with pictures of who you are in Christ and let those images of yourself be like a helmet that keeps your imagination, defends you from false logic, and strengthens your will. My imagination will either make me pray or keep me from praying. If my imagination is filled with condemnation, filled with self-hatred, filled with shame, filled with lust, filled with unforgiveness, then I'm obviously not going to be able to pray. I bring my mind in line with what the gospel says I am, and then I thank God for cleansing my mind if it needs cleansing, putting pictures in my mind that are not in line with God's heart and God's truth, putting those pictures out of my mind. That's what it means to take on the helmet of salvation. See, each one of these could be an entire teaching. Then he says, Keep close to your side the sword of the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit speaking from the Scriptures to your heart words He wants you to believe Him for. Something the Holy Spirit has quickened to you, the promises of God. When it says, the King James Version, again, it's the one that most people tend to quote, or, or the NIV, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, people say, well, see, that's the sword of the Spirit is your Bible. No, it's not. The, the, the whole Bible, uh, some people may freak out when they hear me say this, but you need to freak out if, if it causes you to freak out because you need to learn this. The whole Bible is not the sword of the Spirit. The devil can take part of the Bible and beat you to death with it. That's not the sword of the Spirit. Uh, legalists and religionists and pharisaical mean Christians can take Bible verses and out of context and beat 
beats you to death with it. And the devil quotes scripture out of context like he did to Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Uh, The sword of the spirit is based on a Roman short sword, which was a super sharp sword that the Roman soldier would keep close to his side and pull it out in hand-to-hand combat. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit speaking to you from the Scriptures, what He wants you to take hold of. You take hold of that. And you use it as a short sword, super sharp blade to fight the enemy when he comes at you uh, in in close hand-to-hand combat. Now, let me just say one thing about the phrase hand-to-hand combat. That's that's a phrase only I've only found it in the Passion translation. Uh, most translations don't don't use that, and I'm kind of glad they don't, because here's a problem with obviously when you re- use the word wrestle, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle. You can't get more hand to hand combat uh, oriented than wrestling. I mean, if I'm going to wrestle, you. There's no such thing as wrestling without hand-to-hand combat. So it's very close contact fighting. But that imagery has got to be understood in this sense. It, Paul is not trying to get you to, to picture yourself as being in physical, direct conflict with a demon spirit or a principality or ruler of darkness. Christians who do that always end up in big trouble. You are not equipped or called or anointed to directly fight evil spirits. You're commanded to to take authority over them in Jesus' name when you encounter them. In prayer, you may be directed by the Holy Spirit uh, to speak a word of rebuke or a word uh, of of uh, warfare against principalities and powers but it's like Michael the archangel in the little book of Jude which you find right before the book of Revelation where Michael says to um, um, Satan the Lord rebuke you you know he 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 even Michael the archangel doesn't try to take on Satan uh in direct hand to hand combat he just says I stand against you in the name of the Lord. Later in Revelation 12, you do see Michael casting him down, but uh, that's at the possibly at the close of the age, and I won't get into all the symbolism there, but just suffice it to say, you're not called or equipped or anointed to take on powers of darkness directly. Uh, I learned I learned that the hard way in the early, early days of... Uh, of my ministry when I was I was in my early 20s and I was dealing with all kinds of issues in my own character that were not right unhealed issues none of my sexual abuse issues had been had been properly ministered to but I got it in my head that I was going to go to uh, New Orleans drive over to New Orleans uh, <laughs> and uh witness on the street I figured you know it's middle of the day it's safe you know French Quarter is not weird like it gets at sundown when all the vampires and werewolves come out but I'm going to go confront uh, evil I'm going to win me some brownie points I wasn't thinking this consciously but unconsciously I was full of young egotistical uh, self grandizing aggrandizing uh, motivations that God was not going to bless. But he took an opportunity to teach me a hard lesson. I went into this place called, uh, Mor- the, 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 the owner of the place was named Morgana the Witch. Now, I don't know if Morgana was male or female because, you know, one of the favorite works of darkness is to confuse masculine and feminine and male and female. And uh, I, I, I can't tell you to this day if the person behind the uh, counter <clears throat> when I walked in the door was male or female. 
because the demonic oppression upon this person had so deformed this person that you couldn't tell. But the voice that came out of the face was a voice that was neither human, uh, male or female. It was almost animal-like uh, as it commanded me out of its territory. Now, you say, well, I thought all Christians have all power over all principalities and powers. Well, you know what? If the Holy Spirit had directed a baby Christian who's not even 12 years old to walk in there and speak to this person in Jesus' name, there's no demon that could have had uh, ascendancy over that young baby Christian. But I was going in there in my own strength. I was very much like the sons of Siva in Acts chapter, uh, what is it, Acts chapter 7? Somewhere in the book of Acts. The, the seven sons of uh, Siva go and, and confront a demonized man. And they say, Jesus, we command you in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches to come out of him. And the demon says, literally, King James Version doesn't say it clearly, but the, the Greek says, Jesus we acknowledge and Paul, we've heard of, because he said, I command you in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, to come out of him. Well, I was commanding this spirit to, uh, in the name of uh, uh, myself, using Jesus' name. I, I was motivated by my own ego. And the Lord just, like any good father, wise parent would do, he, he, let, he let me have it. Uh, I, the darkness that covered me, the, sh the fear, this strange spirit of fear as I ran out of the door and got in my car and drove back home. And when the sun went down, my fear got even worse. That thing followed me all the way home, an hour and a half drive back from New Orleans. Uh, it followed me. I finally had to call one of my, one of my elders who was a young guy, not much older than me, but he was much wiser than me. And uh, he came and prayed for me and broke the power of that off of me and then threatened to beat me to death if I ever did such a dumb thing again. But I learned a hard lesson. I learned a good lesson. Uh, but I just want to in interject. that I'll say more about that later on. Lord willing, I'm going to unpack uh, what what Paul really means by principalities and powers. I've, I've made reference to it because the scriptures make reference to it several times uh, in this study already. But uh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to unpack it a lot better for you to fully understand what we're dealing with because we are about to go into a time period, which I believe is right on, on top of us. We're already there where a lot more is going to have to be understood about spiritual warfare. We, we've, uh, we've got to re-engage these subjects. Now, before we talk too much about the devil, let me, let me close this portion of our time together uh, with this verse. Paul says here, after he talks about putting on the whole armor of God, he, he says... You put on the whole armor of God so that you can pray. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Remember, we spent a little bit of time in our last session talking about those verses that refer to praying without ceasing. And I told you the Passion Translation of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. I like it. It says, let your whole life be a prayer. Learn to just breathe prayer. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Now, Paul defines praying in the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as praying in other tongues. That doesn't mean that the Spirit doesn't help you pray in English, but you've got to completely ignore Scripture and just willfully change its meaning. If you try to say that praying in the Spirit doesn't include the lion's share of praying in the Spirit includes praying in other tongues. If you don't pray in other tongues, 
You can ask the Holy Spirit to take you to a place that, that you've never been. Uh, you don't need to feel that you're inadequate in your prayer life, but you do need to, to ask the Lord about it. And don't say like so many people have said to me, I asked the Lord about it and he told me that that was not a gift he wanted me to have. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry folks. That's just, to me, that's just a cop out. Uh, I know last session I tried to be more careful and tried not to insult anybody by making it sound like if you don't pray in other tongues that you are, uh, sub, uh, standard spiritually. Uh, there are many wonderful people who do not pray in tongues. I remember trying to give a copy of My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers to a woman years ago who I knew needed it, and she looked at it and snarled her lip and said, oh, he doesn't pray in tongues. I don't want to read anything he says. And I, 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 I learned then uh, how arrogant and foolish certain charismatic behaviors and thought processes can be and why so many uh, who are not uh, engaged in charismatic ministry tend to not want to be because of that kind of attitude. But having said that, uh, there is a difference between praying in the Spirit and giving a message in tongues that has to be interpreted in a public setting. Not everyone is given the gift of a message in tongues in a public setting. But I do believe that every believer can pray in other tongues. If you're hungry enough, if you pursue it enough, but here's the problem. If you pursue tongues because you're hungry for tongues, you will never get tongues. If you pursue the Lord Jesus Christ because you're hungry for all he has to give you, tongues may show up along with other gifts, but it'll be a direct byproduct of your pursuit of Jesus, not of your pursuit for tongues or other gifts. Okay? That's that's enough said about that, I think. But Paul says, pray at all times in the Spirit with all kinds of of prayers, all kinds of prayers. So if you don't pray in tongues, it doesn't mean you're subnormal. It means you've got other aspects of prayer that you can pursue. You can, you can pursue prayer in English, obviously. You can pursue prayer, uh, in, in, uh, worship and praise. Uh, there's lots of different kinds of prayers that can be engaged and used in spiritual warfare issues. But I'll tell you, again, I keep trying to balance myself and it makes me sound like I'm double-tongued. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So let me just say clearly, let me, let me say clearly, if you don't pray in tongues, it's not a sign of your sub-standard spirituality unless you are resisting it because of some bad teaching or because of some uh, disinterest, because you're just not you're not interested. You don't see any sense in it. Your carnal mind has taken over. You you're not going to obey it because it doesn't please your intellect. If that's a problem, then it's a matter of something you need to repent of, and it is sub uh, standard. If that's your mindset. Uh, Pray at all times in the Spirit with all types of prayer for the purpose of staying alert and watching with strong perseverance. Notice this is a matter of perseverance. This kind of prayer requires perseverance. We are entering a time where uh, this level of prayer is going to become the normal level of prayer for uh, believers who are awake and who are seriously following Jesus. Interceding in behalf of all saints. Uh, interceding on behalf of all saints. And then Paul closes this statement by saying, pray also for me. Here's the great apostle whose, whose ministry is full of miracles and fruit, who's established churches all over the known world, 
who has got the greatest revelation in the New Testament of anybody. And he says, listen, pray for me. He is not saying, as I have stated repeatedly, he is not saying, ask God to, to, to make it easier for me because, uh, you know, I've got a lot of resistance. And maybe if you ask God, God will pay attention to enough of you if you, if you pray for me. That's not what he's saying. I've been saying, tell me again what he's, what is he saying? Say it back to me. Say it back to yourself. He is saying, join with me as I join with God in the furtherance of the kingdom of God in the earth by being a participant in this network, this symphony, this many-sided wisdom of God that uh, is manifested through uh, united prayer. Pray for me that I will be able to speak clearly and unhindered and proclaim boldly the mystery of the good news. I need supernatural help because it's a supernatural battle that is constantly trying to keep me from pressing forward. And I, I need you to help me by praying for me. You help me by praying for me. I want to tell you something. Those of you out there, I know, I know many of you who listen to me every month. I know you pray for me. I know you pray for me. I feel the prayers. I feel the strengthening of, uh, of those prayers coming around me. Uh, and you talk about you talk about resistance. Uh, you you can't imagine. Maybe you can imagine how difficult certain subjects are for me to try to talk about uh, in in uh, at this microphone. There's some some subjects uh, that are are difficult, but when it comes to the subject I'm on now, where I'm I'm helping you enter into prayer. Uh, on a level that maybe is beyond what you've prayed before or is helping all of us come into a, a, a greater place of unity together in purpose, in intercession, in standing in the gap for the country, standing in the gap for the nations, standing in the gap for your family, for your loved ones, for your situation, and for you per- personally. Uh, anything. I could do anything today except nightlight. I could do anything today except pray. I could do anything except talk about prayer to you so you will pray. What I'm talking about is a a kind of atmosphere that permeates my vicinity and takes the form of pressure against me moving forward. And you might naturally ask, well, how does that work? Well, I don't know that we could come up with a, an accurate description of the how, of the how-tos uh, when it comes to the spirit realm. I mean, I will have more to say in the next session about quantum physics and how uh, demonic forces operate in, inside a quantum world that may give us some insight into the question, uh, the answer to the question of how. It, 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 I resent the idea that some evil spirit has access to my house. He's got no business being in my house. He's got no business having access to my mind. He has no business having access to my emotions. And yet, uh, uh, let me just say it this way. I think when I am entering a territory where the enemy has a stronghold and I am endeavoring to steal from him or take back from him what he has stolen. I'm not stealing from him. He doesn't own anything. I'm taking back what belongs to the people of God. When I come in to to take back what belongs to him, he is given permission to resist it, not because God is on his side, obviously, but because God wants me to develop some spiritual muscle. And so it's, it's a, somewhat of a tug of war where I have to, it's kind of like Aslan letting the, the 
Pevensey children earn their earn, earn their spurs in the battle with the White Witch. Uh, I had to, I've had to learn. You know, I can't pay attention to my emotions when it comes time to do Nightlight. Mary and I have learned on the day that I'm going to record Nightlight, uh, we've just got to be extra careful with each other. We will misunderstand each other. We will overreact negatively, uh, mostly me overreacting to her, not her overreacting to me. Uh, but silly things will irritate me that should not irritate me. Uh, especially when it comes to the subject that we're on today. So, uh, having said all that, let's try to bring this to some point of, uh, understanding and, and wrap this up and leave you in a position to go further up and further in with me on this topic. Uh, in the next session. I hope you're beginning to see that it's going to take a long time for us to unwrap all this. We've still got to, to, to delve into uh, in more detail what really is going on in the invisible world when you pray for one another. Why does Paul say if, here in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God and having done all, the, all this putting on of the armor, the purpose of it is so you can pray. Pray, pray what? Pray for everybody. Pray for everything. Don't stop praying. And then he says, and pray for me, that I'll be able to speak without hindrance clearly. Well, why? Well, because 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world system lies in the hands of the wicked one. The whole world system lies in the hands of the wicked one. Uh, Revelation chapters eight, 17 and 18 uh, give a picture of that, which is too large to get into. You might just want to read it for yourself, uh, and we will perhaps address it when we cover uh, the meaning of principalities and powers. But <clears throat> Ephesians 6.12, again, which we've already discussed in some detail, our wrestling match is not against flesh and blood, but against principles principalities and powers and the world rulers of this present darkness the King James says the world rulers of this present darkness what it, how do we deal with the question of Jesus destroying principalities and powers as it says in Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and then our wrestling match with principalities and powers, Ephesians 6 and 1 John 5 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, which says, if this gospel is hid, it's hid to them that are lost whom the God of this world, little g, has blinded the eyes. Uh, we, we are responsible to enforce the victory of the cross by prayer, by preaching, by ministry, and by our lifestyle upon the vanquished armies of darkness that still claim illegal hold or control over certain portions of the earth that are still aligning themselves in rebellion against the kingdom of God and therefore are under the sway of forces of darkness. Uh, we overcome those dark forces by prayer, by preaching, by the way we live our lives, by practice, if you want three Ps, prayer, preaching, and practice. Um, and that's a whole other subject that we need to spend a lot of time on and I'll, I'll just introduce it into your thinking now so that when we do come back to it, you'll be a, a somewhat prepared for it. But uh, the whole world lying in the hands of the wicked one, the whole world system, uh, I mean, you you got to be careful not to get too fanciful with this. And my imagination can run away with me if I'm not careful. But I I, I can't help but pay attention to the fact 
that there seems to be a network, I've already made reference to this in our last time together, from God's point of view, there's there's this network of connections in prayer, or if you want to use another picture, a symphony of many parts that that uh, under the conductor's baton <clears throat> is brought into a, a, a unity and symphony together in prayer. Uh, there's other other images we could use, but the idea of of this this net of prayer. Ah, gosh, how can I say it in a way that makes sense to us? I remember many years ago, in a classroom setting, there was a man who turned out to be a Ph.D. electrician, electronics expert. Not an electrician, he was he was an electrical engineer with a Ph.D. in electronics. And uh, I, I had made the statement during the class setting that, I wonder when we will discover the line between physics and metaphysics. Now, metaphysics, the word meta just means beyond physics. And To read some phys- physicists, you would think Almighty God himself uh, reads a physics book and makes sure that he doesn't break any of the rules of physics. You know, it's ridiculous, but... Uh, uh, he was. This man wasn't carrying that silly, uh, prideful attitude. He was a humble student of the Word of God, as well as a brilliant Ph.D. in uh, uh, electromagnetism. But uh, he said to me at the break, he said, "You know, we don't really know what what the difference is between physics and metaphysics." We don't know what electricity is. We know how it behaves. We know what it will do. We can predict its responses to certain certain principles. But we don't know what it is. It's power. It's lightning. It's it's light. Uh, it's energy. It's a it's a force we have somewhat managed to. Uh, contained, but we don't really know what it is. Well, the reason I'm bringing up that story is because uh, now in 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 stories like science fiction movies and so forth, there's more of a a, a common storyline in some stories about the difference between physics and and metaphysics and how. There's not that much difference. I remember in one of the Thor movie, maybe the first Thor movie, for those of you who still go with me to certain science fiction movies that most adults have outgrown. <laughs> but but uh, Thor makes the statement that uh, primitive people like people on Earth think of him and uh, Valhalla as... Uh, gods, but really we're not gods. We're just highly, highly evolved technical aliens with a, a, a vast degree of scientific information and ability that is way beyond the physics of Earth or the understanding of the physics of Earth and etc. cetera. Uh, at some point, there is no difference between science and metaphysics and uh, that's why, you know, I can remember years ago, years ago, 30 plus years ago now, when Ghostbusters came out, and how ridiculous it seemed to people that uh, ghosts, quote unquote, could be uh, captured and contained by three knucklehead scientists with uh, laser type ray guns and all this kind of stuff. And it just seemed silly. And then later on, you begin to have TV shows where uh, ghost searchers or psychic uh, researchers or you know people of that ilk are supposedly taking photographs of uh, supernatural activity. Then come to find out, some of those photographs seem to be irrefutably. Uh, valid, but unexplainable. Same way with UFOs. 
UFOs, which are, you know, I've always said the people that fly the flying saucers are the same people that run the haunted houses. They're demons and demons in the flying saucers and demons in the haunted houses. And we'll talk more about that when the time comes. But uh, when, when you when you start dealing with principalities and powers, you start dealing with the angelic and you start dealing with the realm of the physical uh, and where the physical and the supernatural meet and where the physical and the supernatural divest from one another and how all that works. I'm saying all that to say this. I'm sitting at my desk praying about how to communicate with you about these things in nightlight and the battle to get to my desk and the battle to focus on what I'm doing and the struggle in my mind as well as the atmosphere around me, outside of me, to keep me from communicating is manifestly more than just circumstances set in motion by mere human energy. And it makes me mad that evil may have access to my home or my study or my electrical equipment, uh, but they do. And God allows that. I think it must have something to do with Romans chapter 8, which we've already referred to, where God has allowed the universe to be placed under frustration. He's allowed the universe to be frustrated in its proper creation, uh, uh, purpose for creation, uh, so that in the ensuing battle to set creation free, there will come a day when all of creation is liberated because all of creation was put under it. And that's too big a subject to t- talk about in the close of a, of a message. But uh, I've already brought up about four subjects that I said are too big to talk about, and I talked about them. But it, it, my purpose in, in doing that is to put these things in your thinking so you can start chewing on them. I'm sure many of you have, are, are ahead of me on, on, on this. But my point in all that is this. The Holy Spirit is teaching us how to walk in the Spirit while we live in the frustrated physical world. And and in that uh, journey that we're making through this present darkness, we are called to live from the throne and rule in this present life by Christ Jesus we rule now, if Romans chapter 4 says. We rule now. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are seated with him now in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That means that we rule by prayer. We'll spend a whole session just on that. And uh, in order to understand that particular kind of prayer, which is one of the many kinds of prayer Paul tells us we should all be praying into, and, and manifesting. Uh, in order to understand all that, we have to understand that the spirit world has substance. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Some translations say faith is the evidence or faith is the guarantee uh, all those words are valid, but I don't think they're as, as accurate as the King James when it says faith is the substance of, of things hoped for. Faith, it, it, that same chapter, Hebrews 11, goes on to describe faith as seeing the invisible. It doesn't say seeing the non-existent. See, in our, in our arrogant fallen mindset. We think the invisible is the unreal, or the invisible is the non-existent. We don't say it that way. I mean, we say all the right things, but somewhere in our thinking, if you'll be honest, there's a tendency to think the invisible is the non-existent, and only the, only, only the visible is existent. Well, that's not even true. When it comes to uh, physics, when it comes to uh, especially quantum physics, it's the the quantum world, the invisible world, which is the uh, 
the generator of the of the visible so that as i've already made reference to it from hebrews chapter 11 so that things which are made were made of things that don't uh, appear the things which appear the things which you can see are not made of things which appear they're made of things which don't appear now uh, when you start talking like this, a lot of Christians get real nervous because they say, well, you know, you're, you're getting on the edge of the metaphysical and that gets you on the edge of the occult because when you start talking about the metaphysical, you're right on the verge of talking about the occult as if the only thing metaphysical is devilish, which I think is obviously part of the product of, uh, unbelieving, materialist, Gnostic Christianity. How can you be Gnostic and materialist? Well, we've managed to do it. We're, we're, we're pretty much materialist in our, our view of what's important, and we are pretty much Gnostic in our tendency to separate the material from the non-material and believe that only the material has validity and the non-material is a, a different category altogether. So what am I trying to say in all that? I'm trying to say that there is, there, there is a coming together in the incarnation of the metaphysical and the physical so that in Christ there is the summing up of all things both in heaven and on earth and under the earth uh, so eventually there will be no difference between the visible and the invisible. But we are called to live in that reality now as believers. We are called to see the unseen and to live and operate in uh, a realm where the two worlds are not separate uh, because we're called to follow our, our master who uh, said things <laughs> to people that just made their head warp like, if, if, if it upsets you uh, for me to say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. If that upsets you, what would, what would you do if you saw me where I was before? Uh, and then he says, uh, speaking of his pre-incarnation, and then he says, uh, the son of man who is in heaven, he is in heaven. He's sitting there talking to them on earth but he makes reference to himself as at that moment being also in heaven. So there's not this vast separation between the visible and the invisible. Now how the demonic realm operates in the midst of that economy of the coming together of the visible and the invisible is a question that we're going to examine in uh, time to come, uh, God helping us. But I, I pray that you will, you will really seriously let this affect and transform and inform and transform the way you think about your daily life, the atmospheres that you encounter that you think, well, why am I feeling this way? Well, maybe you're feeling this way, if it's a negative feeling, because you've just come into the presence of something that gives off a negative energy all the time. And just like you smell a skunk sometimes, and you go, man, where'd that come from? Well, it came from a skunk. Sometimes I smell things in the spirit, and I go, Where, where'd that come from? There must be a demonic skunk around here somewhere. Uh, I know you can get weird with that. I know sometimes people can get so spooky, you don't want to be around them. But let's don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's don't be stupid in the other direction. And be so, you know, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, we say that. But you can reverse that. Sometimes you can be so earthly minded, you're no heavenly good. I pray that God will open our eyes and grant us understanding of these things so that we move into a greater realm of authority in prayer. Because if I am accurate that the only way that the, the, this present darkness is eventually overturned and and uh, dis destroyed uh, in its present manifestation. E even though Jesus has set 
the, in motion the destruction of principalities and powers at the cross, there has to be a, a finishing of that work through his people, if I can use that terminology. You know, you must, the Father says to the Son, six times it's quoted in the New Testament based on verses in Psalm 110 in the Old Covenant, which we'll spend a lot of time unpacking. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father at his ascension when he said, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory will come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the King of glory, and he has just conquered principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them, and he's dragging them through the spirit realm, uh, tied behind his chariot, so to speak, the way the ancient kings uh, did their vanquished foes. And yet, in the physical realm of this present darkness, they still wield certain manifestations that God has left in place to train us how to rule in obedience to him. And that's, that's what we'll unpack more in the sessions to come. Father, please, please uh, protect us all from fanciful, imaginative, false ideas but don't let us equally Lord don't let us go off in the other direction into unbelief and materialistic Gnostic pseudo-Christian modernism disguised as orthodoxy we pray in Jesus name Amen